it is so good to be together you in the room and with those online. We are so grateful that we get to share this moment with you. Uh, if you're new with us, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for allowing us to um, be a part of your weekend, whether you're in the room or online. Hey, Westside, let's give those that are new with us and those online a uh, let them know how grateful we are to share this moment with them. Will you do that with me? Yeah. Well, we are in uh, this series called No Days Off, and we're looking at parenting. And really, uh, this is more than just parenting. For those of you that don't have kids in your home, this is for you to also see how you can uh, see the role that you have with those that are closest to you. So while we are looking specifically at parenting, it's for those of us who do not have kids. We're looking at this role that we have that is a sacred role. I mean, for those of us with children in our homes, this is a sacred role. And as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's sacred because it's selfless. And when it's selfless, it's more sacred. And this is the no days off of parenting that we've been talking about. And it's, we need to, in this role that we have of parenting, we need to recognize how do we parent for the win? Because that's what we all want to do in this role that we have, these limited time that we have with our children in our home, and even the moments that we have with those in our influence beyond the time that we have uh, in, their, in our homes. We, have, we want to win with those relationships. And so this is the series big idea that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. We continue this, looking at this today. And we believe this is the win in parenting, that we're going to love and lead in our homes the same way our Heavenly Father loves and leads us. That we're going to love and lead those within our homes. For parents, we're going to love and lead in our, our children's life. For those that don't have kids, you're going to love and lead those that are closest to you in your sphere of influence. In the same way that your Heavenly Father has loved and led you. And as we looked at last week, we're going to follow and walk, follow and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ has loved us and led us. Now today, I want to ask a heavy question. It's a very deep question that I believe many of us have wrestled with for many different reasons. And the question is this, how good is good enough? I mean, let that, I mean you feel the weight of that question? How good is good enough? Now, maybe you've wrestled with that in your past. And maybe if you've wrestled with it, you had a parent who you wondered... How good is good enough for you? Um, maybe you've had a coach that you question, how good is good enough? Maybe there was a teacher in your life that you question, how good is good enough for that teacher? Or maybe you had a friend that, that you had and you wondered, how good is good enough for that friend? Has that, a question, has that question ever affected you? Has that ever kept you up at night? <laughs> um, and maybe many of us, and, and most of us that have been affected by this question, many of us then have even questioned how good is good enough for God? How good must I be to get to heaven? See, if you've ever questioned this, if you've ever even questioned this about God, it's likely that you grew up um, under someone who demanded perfection from you. Or you demanded Maybe you demanded perfection of yourself, and then you projected that perfection, that demand of perfection on those that you that that that, that they're closest to you, that they only love you when you're perfect, that when your performance is perfect, or if you're perfect. And the reality is, is we've all been placed under the scrutiny at some time or other, whether it's self-inflicted or inflicted by the demands of others, of what I like to call the perfection 
infection because that's what it is. It's an infection. And, 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 and I want to quickly address this perfection infection and the effects of its demand in our lives. First of all, demanding perfection is unloving and it destroys one's security and self-worth. It systematically makes performance the basis of one's worth and not the personhood the basis as the basis of someone's worth. See, demanding perfection tells someone, it projects on someone that they're only valuable and worthy of love when their performance meets that level or measures up to the level of perfect. And what does this do? For the one on whom that demand is given, it erodes the self-worth of that person. See, demanding perfection ensures that someone will never ever measure up. See, demanding perfection is a selfishly prideful act by the one in demand. If you demand perfection of others, it is your selfishness and your pride that is demanding it. Now, there is a line that separates, and I need to just recognize this, there is a a line that separates demanding perfection and pushing people toward excellence. There's There's a line that separates the two. See, there's a line between demanding perfection and then also pushing people to excellence. And I'm talking about the demand of perfection, this demand to be perfect, not giving permission for people to fail. So you can demand this of others. Also, if you demand perfection of yourself, guess what it is? It's your pride that's making that demand of you. So where does this demand of perfection really come from? Well, it is a result of our insecurity. See, demanding perfection is a result of my insecurity. If it's my demand, then it's the result of my insecurity. This is why you see so many insecure parents at the baseball fields or on the volleyball court. Or on the basketball court. Because it's not that the parents are secure in their kids' performance. Their parents are insecure in their kids' performance. And they demand perfection because of their own insecurity. And in this, it's someone else's, if it's someone else's demand on us, it's their re- reality. It's their insecurity that is demanding that perfection of us. Now, before you resist this, before you write me off, and before you just shut me down, I just ask you, to take a moment, and let's just think about this. Let's rationalize this. Not rationalize, but rationally think about this. See, to demand perfection, to demand perfection of others is to say that you, the other person, lacks something. And, 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 And you lack that until perfection is achieved. See, show me a perfectionist, and I'll show you someone who's lacking something, they lack security. And show me a perfectionist and I'll show you someone who's likely insecure. And the reason I know this about you perfectionists out there is because I are one. I am one. I know this. Perfectionism says I am not secure with any way but my way or the way I think is the right way. And I'm not secure in your performance until 
That standard is measured up. And I'm not secure. And unless things are perfect, I'm not going to be secure even in my own performance. Much less yours. See, either way, the perfectionist is the one with the problem of insecurity. And now... What we do as perfectionists with the problem of insecurity is we create environments of insecurity. They, people like this and people like me and you continue to create cultures that lead people to ask, how good is good enough for you? How good is good enough for mom? Or dad, how good is good enough to please your teacher? How good is good enough for your coach? How good is good enough for that friend? See, there's a perfection infection amongst our humanity. And the reason there's a perfection infection in humanity is a direct result of the curse of sin. See, the perfection infection is the result of sin destroying God's perfect design. See, this is why the perfection infection infects you. This is why the perfection infection has been uh, uh, affected you. And not you just deal with it yourself, but you've had it imposed on you. See, we are born in a perfection deficit. We are born in the red. It's impossible for any human being, including you, including me, to be perfect. It's impossible for you to be perfect. And you need to realize something, too. It's impossible for your children. Impossible for your children to be perfect. It's impossible, husbands, for your wife to be perfect. Wives, it's impossible for your spouse, your husband, to be perfect. It's impossible, children, adult children, it's impossible for your, your parents to be perfect. It's impossible for your friends to be perfect. Perfect. And God knows this. And the reason that we realize this is because, man, this is the world we live in. This is the curse of our humanity. We are in this perfection deficit. And because God knew this, God knew this, God knew that no human being, including you and I, would be born who are born under the curse of sin, could be perfect. It is impossible. And so God, our perfect Father in heaven would send Jesus into this world. And what would be humanly impossible, God would take on our humanity and being fully human and fully God would do what no full human could do. Jesus would live the perfect life that none of us could live. Jesus would then be crucified and die to pay the penalty for everyone's imperfections. The Holy Spirit then would raise Christ back to life so God could freely give life to imperfect people who trust in him and follow him. See, this is what we call the gospel. This is good news for those like you and like me who are imperfect and who will never measure up, who will never be good enough. See, Jesus fulfilled the demand for your perfection and paid the penalty of your imperfections to give you life when you trust in him as savior and follow him as lord this is the gospel this is how god chose to deal with humanity's imperfection this is how god chose to deal with your imperfections this is how god chose to deal with our sin however many of us intellectually say we believe that but we don't truly 
believe this in the way we act out. See, we think that we still have to be perfect in order for God to love us and accept us. And then under this perfection infection that we still allow ourselves to believe that is there, that we have to measure up, that there there is a, a standard that we have to meet for God to love us and accept us, we create homes. We create homes where our children feel that they have to be perfect in order to get you to love them. In order for you just to say you're proud of them. In order for them to feel like they're accepted by you. That they have to measure up and for your love to show up in their life. See, demanding perfection, you know what this ultimately does for those of us that believe in what Jesus has done for us? Demanding perfection of others dilutes the power of Jesus' life and death. Demanding perfection of yourself dilutes the power of Jesus' life and death that is for you. See, to demand perfection of yourself or someone else is to to declare that Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death is not and was not good enough for you. To demand this of your spouse is to say that Jesus' life and his death was not good enough for your spouse. To demand Jesus that, 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 that your kids be perfect is to demand and to state that Jesus' life and death is not good enough for them. It dilutes the power of the gospel of Jesus. And this is not the good news that Jesus came to declare. And that's not how God loves you, and that's not how God leads you into a relationship with him by demanding perfection. I remember one day when this just landed in my heart. I remember one day, it was a couple years ago, and it was one of my kids, and I've got a couple of them here with us here in the morning. They're sitting on the front row with me. And I remember one day, it it happened with one of the, the kids that God landed this truth into my life. One of my kids had done something, and I knew they did it, I knew they did it by accident, and I knew they didn't want to confess to it. Because they didn't want to disappoint me. And in that moment, I'll tell you, I parented outside of my capacity. I'm not this wise nor this smart. But it was in one of those moments, these God-ordained moments, that the Holy Spirit just gave me the right thing to say. And in this moment, this parenting moment, I looked up at my child who was at the top of the stairs. And I was down at the base of the stairs. And I looked at my child and I said, my child's name. I don't need you to be perfect. I need you to be honest. And it landed so deep within me. Years of studying scripture and reading the Bible all the way through. And in this one moment, God took the clarity of the gospel that is clear in scripture to me. And I'm going to show you that here in a minute. And he brings us down and lands us as a truth in my life. Right there. That God does not need you and I to be perfect. God doesn't need you to be perfect. He needs you and I to be honest. This truth is not just something my child needed. This truth was something I need. And this truth is something that we all need. And it's a truth that Jesus came to share. That he doesn't need you to be perfect. He needs you, though, to be honest. He does not demand perfection from you. He desires honesty from you. See, God doesn't demand perfection from you. If God expected you to be perfect, then Jesus would not have had to come to live the perfect life and die to pay the penalty 
for all of your sins. See, if that was that, see, but God did send Jesus to be what you and I cannot be, perfect. And God did send Jesus. He gave, Jesus then gives us what we could not earn for ourselves, a right standing with God. And God then sent Jesus to be good enough for you. And God sent Jesus to be good enough for your spouse. God sent Jesus to be good enough for your kids. God sent Jesus for those who will never be good enough for God. This is how God loves you. This is how God leads you. This is how he parents you and I. He doesn't need you to be perfect. He needs you to be honest. He doesn't require that you and I be perfect in order to have a relationship with him. But you know what he requires to have a relationship with God? God requires you and I to be honest with him. So before you leave and before you check out or you get offline, I want you to know this teaching big idea because it's so important, not just to your relationship with God, it's important to every relationship you have. See, relationships are built on honesty, not perfection. Relationships are built on honesty, not perfection. Think about this. Think about your closest relationships. Are the people closest to you, are the people you feel closest to, the ones who put the demand of perfection on you? No. In fact, those that put the demand of perfection on us are the ones we feel like we struggle to be close to. They're the ones we feel farthest away from. And maybe this is the very reason you feel so far from God today. Because you feel like there's a demand of perfection on you from him. Or you've demanded perfection of yourself. And you say, how could God accept me in this state? See, we feel farthest from those who put that that we feel put that demand on us. Because relationships, the relationship with those that you're closest to, are not built on perfection. They're built on honesty. They're the ones you can be most honest with. Those are the ones you feel closest to, the ones that you can be most honest with. Relationships are not built on perfection. They're built on honesty. And this is what Jesus would teach especially in your relationship with God. Jesus would show this, and, and the first century historian Luke wanted you and I to see connections here. He wanted you to, and I to see the connection between perfection and honesty, and that God doesn't expect perfection from you, but he desires honesty from all of us, and that God doesn't need you to be perfect, but he needs you to be honest, that he wants a relationship with you, and he's not going to demand perfection to get that relationship. All he asks you is to be honest, with him. Luke tells two stories of two men that interact with Jesus back to back. And in this, these two stories, these are two <clears throat> rich men that if anybody could do it, could pay for their relationship, that money would do it. And in this story, these two stories that Luke shares, God, uh, Jesus shows you and I this truth. And so the first story, a certain ruler, this is the rich young ruler that Jesus interacts with, a certain ruler came and asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how good is good enough? Good teacher, how perfect do I need to be to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor 
your father and mother. Here, Jesus reflects the Mosaic law. And then the man says, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack. You still don't measure up. You're still not good enough. You still lack one thing. Sell everything. Sell it all. Everything you have, sell it all and give to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Oh, by the way, then come follow me. This will set you up to be able to follow. And when he heard this, the rich young ruler heard this, he became, like I would be, very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And in this moment, people were thinking, that is impossible. And for those of you that thought that the eye of the needle was like this little gate, that the entry, I mean, there is an eye that is called that and camels could go through. That's not what I think Jesus is communicating here because the people there didn't receive it this way. The people there thought what I think. How impossible is it for a camel to go through an eye of a needle? And the reason I believe they thought that, look what they say next. Who then, if this guy can't do it, who then can be saved? If he can't be good enough for God, then who can be? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man. And this is the key. This is the key to everything. What is impossible with you and I. What is impossible with humanity. What is impossible. That perfection is impossible. Is possible with God. And then Peter has this one of these moments. Where he looks at his friends, his disciples and says, uh, Jesus, um, look at us over here. We've left all we've had. I mean, we've left all we've had. To follow you. And truly I tell you, Jesus says to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age. And in the age to come, he he goes back to what the original thing was. Eternal life. So how good is good enough? Is perfection good enough? But no, not according to Jesus. Because perfection is impossible with man. Being good enough for God is impossible with man, but perfection is possible with God. Striving for perfection on your own effort is pointless, but sacrificing for the kingdom, giving something up for God's kingdom does so much more than sacrificing to be perfect. See, perfection gains you nothing, but sacrifice Sacrifice 
gains everything. So how does sacrifice and honesty then connect in this? Well, I believe Luke ties these two strings together, these threads together in a follow-up story that Jesus then sets about. Because as soon as he leaves this, we read that Jesus heads to Jericho because in Jericho, there's another rich man by which Jesus needs to have an encounter with to prove his point even further. To make this even more. So in this, Luke connects these. And as Jesus is with this other rich man, and this rich man is a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And this is a tax collector that is in this Jewish world a dishonest man. Because he gained all his wealth through the dishonest scales. And exploiting the taxes of the people of his own people to gain wealth for himself. Point blank, he used dishonesty to selfishly acquire all that he had. He made his wealth by being dishonest. And in this Jewish culture, they saw Zacchaeus as the farthest person from perfection. And so they just encountered the most perfect person and they thought this was impossible with God, so who can be saved? And Jesus is now with this dishonest person, the farthest thing from perfection that is possible, and and, and now Jesus is making the point, and more so than that, this is a person, Zacchaeus is a person who broke relationship with all of those that he cheated through his dishonesty. Because that's what dishonesty does. I mean, look at this. Dishonesty is selfish and breaks relationship. It breaks the relationship. It's a dishonor. Dishonesty is a dishonor to the relationship. Dishonesty is a dishonor to you. That when I'm dishonest with you, I am dishonoring you. And it breaks the relationship. It destroys that. It's a selfish way. And you know what it does? It's a selfish way to protect ourselves. It's a sign of our own insecurity. See, dishonesty is often a cover-up for my imperfections and my insecurities. This is why my child was doing what my child was doing when my child was denying, was being dishonest with me, denying the accident that they committed. It's because they were covering up an imperfection and an insecurity. See, why? this is why you and I choose. I mean, think about this. This is why you and I choose to lie about the silliest of things. Why would you lie about that? I mean, it, it, but the reality is we lie because we want to make ourselves look perfect. We lie because we cover up our insecurities. And we are more concerned about covering up our imperfections than we are about preserving our relationship. And when someone finds out we lie, after we've lied about something even simple, you know what it always does? It always draws us closer, doesn't it? You laugh because you know it's not true. No. Even the silliest of lies breaks trust. It breaks trust in our relationship because dishonesty destroys trust. And relationships are built on trust. So Jesus now is headed (laughs) to make a point to imperfect people with the most imperfect man. 
Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. I mean, we'll talk about making a boy. He's not just a tax collector. He's the one that all these other tax collectors give their access to. He's the main uh, ringleader behind this entire selfish, evil, oppressive scheme. And he, Jesus, is about ready to make a big scene. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree, fig tree, to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus had reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay. I've got a point to make today. I must be with you. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once. And welcomed Jesus gladly. So hit pause right now. Jesus is now in the house of this most hated man. The most imperfect man in this Jewish culture. He's now in this. A man who built his beautiful home that Jesus is now in. By exploiting all the people that were outside. Wanting to know. How, what is, how do I get eternal life? Wanting to know. How do I follow Jesus? And so now Jesus the most perfect man was in the home and now with one of the most imperfect men. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And not just any sinner, the worst of all the sinners. And, but Zacchaeus stands up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back Four times the amount. This was Zacchaeus' response to hearing Jesus teach about the kingdom of God. The same kingdom that the rich young ruler wanted to inherit. And in this moment, we have to wrestle with something. How good is good enough? And Jesus through his resurrection, shows you and I that his truth stands above every other truth that you and I would want to believe. And this is what Jesus says to him. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too, this man too, this imperfect man, this worst of the worst men, this one that you thought earlier it was impossible, you definitely thought this was impossible. This man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the son of man came to seek and to save the lost the son of man came to seek and to save people who felt and know that they're not good enough for God so how good how good is good enough how perfect do we need to be for our Heavenly Father? Jesus didn't save Zacchaeus because he was perfect. Jesus saved Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus learned something. He learned something about the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is a family with God, not just as king, but God as a father, a loving father. And he learned that the people of the kingdom of God are not just people. They're the family. They're the family. They're the family with whom we share a relationship. 
See, God doesn't need you to be perfect. God needs you to be honest. And Zacchaeus was saved. Jesus saved Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus honestly confessed his imperfections and made right what he did wrong. You know, when he confessed, when he, he said, hey, look, Jesus, I, all these things, I make it right right now. You know what he was doing? He was confessing his sin, not just to his Lord. He was confessing it to all around. And he said, what I've done wrong, I'm going to make it right, up to four times the amount. See, now we can't always make right what we've made wrong, what we've done wrong, but I tell you what we can always do. We can always confess. We can always confess the wrong we've done. Can you imagine what this did to the people and the people's trust for Zacchaeus? It restored it. It restored the trust because that's what honesty does. Honesty builds trust in our relationship. Honesty builds trust in our relationship. Demanding perfection destroys it. But honesty builds trust and protects our relationship. See, honesty protects our relationship while demanding perfection destroys it. Demanding perfection is a, a, a false security of a relationship because no one, no one can achieve perfection. And you need your kids to know that. You and I need to be parents that tell our kids, we don't need you to be perfect. We need you, though, to be honest. Because honesty is what's going to keep this relationship together. Your perfection is not. And we need to lead the same way that your heavenly Father loves you, does not demand perfection from you, but all he requires, and he does require, honesty from See, honesty requires a sacrifice. There is a consequence. And while Zacchaeus had the confession and his honesty, it cost him. He made right what he could make right from the wrong he did. And you know what's going to cost you and I? Our selfishness. See, honesty is a confession of my imperfection, and it's a sacrifice of my selfishness. That's what honesty does. It sacrifices my selfishness because I can be honest and I can give up protecting my perfection, my facade, my insecurities. It's not about that because what's true and I am going to honor you with what's true. That's what I... The honesty does. Honesty honors you with what is true. Honesty is a confession of our imperfections. And it's a sacrifice of our selfishness. And we can be honest with God because we're secure in his love. His unending love and his unfailing kindness. You can be secure in. And so that gives you permission to be honest. And in your homes. You want your kids to be honest because of the security they have in your love for them. That they can be secure. That they can, they can know that honesty, 
Honesty is saying, I want to honor you with what is true. See, to be honest, we have to be selfless. We have to be selfish. See, selfishness is why we want to protect ourselves. Selfishness is why we want to, to, to hide our imperfections. But no, see, we need to confess our imperfections. Honest confession, that's the key. Honest confession is the key to rest- restoration. See, honest confession leads to healing and restoration. It le- you're conf- this is why we confess our sins to God. You, you know why? It's not a demand of perfection. He wants an honest confession. I'm imperfect. I don't measure up. I fail. I know this is a sin. I tell you. And the problem is we're not even honest with ourselves. And if we can't be honest with ourselves, I say this often, if you can't be honest with yourself, who can you really be honest with? James, the half-brother of Jesus, knew this, that just this isn't about healing with God. This is about your healing and healing with others. That's why he would say, confess your sins. Therefore, confess your sins to each other, to each other, to each other. Husbands, confess your sins to your spouse, uh, to to wives. Wives, confess your sins to your husband. Parents, confess your sins to your kids. Kids, you confess your sins to your parents. Confess your sins to the ones you've wronged. Do what Zacchaeus did. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Because when they confess to you, you get to pray to them. That you may be healed, restored. God does not need you to be perfect. He needs you to be honest. And as parents, we do not need our kids to be perfect. We need them. You need to be honest. We need to model this. They need to see mom and dad confessing our faults and our sins to one another. They need to see that it's a safe environment to do this. They need to hear you. They need to see you because that's going to build their confidence to come to you and honor you with what is true. Because honesty is what love requires. Love requires honesty, not perfection. And today... We're going to remember that in a very special way. As we look at the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus through these two elements that have been a sacred, a sacred ceremony for the body of Christ. Communion. And today there's two things that I want you to do. I'm going to ask you in a moment to stand up. And in a moment we're going to stand up. We're going to come receive the cup. And I'm going to ask you to take the cup. There's two cups in one cup. The bottom cup has a piece of bread. And the top cup has a juice. For those online, grab whatever you can. I invite you to participate with us in this. And this is what I want you to do as you come. I want you to first confess. Confess to God those imperfections that you've been hiding because of your own insecurity because you didn't believe that you thought that you had to be good enough maybe there's something you need to confess and the second thing is commit 
commit. This commitment might be a commitment that beyond this, you need to make a phone call to somebody. You need to take your spouse on a date. You need to bring your children into your home. You need to bring them in, and you need to commit to confess to them something to make things right. And Or you need to commit to say, hey, I, I want you to know I failed. We've made perfection the goal. Perfection's no longer the goal. Honesty. Honesty. Because God doesn't require us to be perfect. He requires us to be honest. And honesty is what builds our relationship, not perfection. So will you stand? Will you exit out your left? Will you get your elements to return?